Hi everyone, welcome back to Herstory Talk. I'm your host, Melina, and today we're going to be talking about women in the arts. I actually don't have a special guest with me today, it's just me, but I am going to make things as interesting as possible for you guys. So, let's get started. I decided that I was going to choose three different people for you guys today. I was going to choose a playwright, an actress, and an artist. Now, this is very exciting for me. Um, In case you guys didn't know, I actually have been studying the arts for around seven years now. I went to a performing arts high school, and then I went to college for theater and film. Um, So I'm definitely excited because all of this knowledge has just been jammed into my brain for years and years and years. And um, unfortunately, I don't get to talk about all the women I've learned about, but I do get to choose about a select few, and that is just so exciting to me. So anyone who keeps up with me on TikTok or Instagram has probably seen the video where I talked about Afrobem. And you know, the videos I make are only 59 seconds long. I don't really get to make any longer than that. So I didn't get to get as much information in as I would like to. Afrobem is one of my favorite female playwrights in history. And I just want to give you guys a little background before I go straight into her. Um, So the thing about theater is that um, it was pretty sexist, just like a lot of things, for a really long time. Um, You know, women up until, you know, not even like a century ago, were pretty much just meant to be housewives in a lot of situations and scenarios. And this doesn't go for every country, of course. You know how it is, guys. I mean, it's just how it goes. Um, But it was actually illegal for women to act or be playwrights um, in England until 1660. The church, which had control for a short while, actually forbade the appearance of women on the stage. And it wasn't until King Charles II, he was this avid theater goer, he loved theater, he actually, you know, made it a requirement that all female parts should be played by women. And here's the thing, is that men played female parts for centuries. I'm talking, let's go all the way back to ancient Greece. It literally didn't matter if there was a woman written into a script. A woman could not play it. A man was hired to play a woman. Usually a man who had feminine qualities or a higher-pitched voice was cast. Or in ancient Greece, they had masks that um, made your face look like a woman. So, you know, you had all of these laws because... Men didn't want women to act. In some cases, it even came down to the fact that some people saw it equal to prostitution. They thought women were selling their bodies, essentially. And so that's why they wouldn't allow them to act. It was also a power thing, too. Let's be honest. But the same thing comes with playwriting. I mean, playwriting was 
a man's profession. There's um, this quote, I can't remember who said it, but it said, male playwrights write for the world, female playwrights write for women. So with that in mind, let's get down to talking to Afropen. The reason why she's kind of always taught, not always, but most of the time taught in theater curriculum is because she wasn't the first female playwright, but she was the first to earn her living by writing. It was insanely hard to earn a living by writing, whether you were a playwright or just a novelist. I mean, we even see that in the 1800s, women were having a hard time becoming novelists because um, it just, no one wanted to read a woman's book. And if they did, it was just purely for other women. So let's talk about her. Let's figure out who she was, why people always teach her, why I personally love her so much. Well, not a lot is known about her early life. We know that she was baptized around 1640 and then she ended up dying in 1689. So she lived to be around, you know, 50 years old almost, maybe a little older because we don't know the exact date that she was born. So she was very appreciated for female writers after her day. She made a big impact. Virginia Woolf even once said in A Room of One's Own, all women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Aphrobin, which is most scandalous but rather appropriately in Westminster Abbey, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds. This is how much of an impact she had on other females, on other women, especially writers. Virginia Woolf, who is very well known, even said, we ought to thank her. We have to thank her for everything she did. So how did she get to that point? How did she get to have that legacy? Well, it's actually quite a crazy story. Um, she may or may not have been, but it is widely believed that Afriben was a spy. Which is crazy. That's so amazing. Like, not only was she a spy, she was also the first female playwright to earn a living writing plays, doing something she actually wanted to do. So she wasn't born Afriben. She married what some people believe is John Ben or Johan or Jahan. No one really knows. He's not that important. She took his last name and then they separated or he died. We're not really sure. Around 1664. And then she used Mrs. Ben, Afriben, as her pen name. So she was a very dedicated supporter to King Charles II. And let's remember, it's King Charles II who also lifted that ban for um, women not being allowed to be on the stage because he is that avid of a theater goer. So she kind of has a lot to thank to him um, because 
I believe that uh, without him and her connection, she probably wouldn't have been able to do what she accomplished. Um, So we have a man who is very much a supporter of the arts, and we have a woman who eventually meets him through a friend. And she becomes a Tory supporter. So at this time, we have the Whigs, and we have the Tories, and she was a Tory supporter. So she became attached to the court. Um, It's believed through Thomas Culpepper. And it was during this time, around 1666 or 1665, that the Second Anglo-Dutch War had happened. And this was a war between England and the Netherlands. And this... This is when she is recruited to be a political spy by King Charles II. She is sent all the way to Antwerp. And this is, you know, she could have been a spy before this, but this is really the first documented thing and account that we have of her being a spy. And her code name is Astria, which she actually... It's a name she uses to publish her writings. She uses her code name, which is so clever. So her role was there was this guy named William Scott, and he was the son of Thomas Scott, um, who had been executed in 1660. And you know, he he seemed like he was ready to become a spy in the English service. And that, you know, he, he might be able to give us some information and he might be able to help because there were these English exiles who were plotting to kill the king or plotting against the king. And so they were like, Afra, listen, you have to go in there, okay? You have to get intimate. You have to do whatever you can to get William Scott to join us. We think William Scott could be a spy, but we really, really, really need your help. So she went there. I mean, we don't, we don't know what she exactly did, but it is believed that she, whether it was flirted with him, had a relationship with him, her whole job was to get intimate with William Scott to be able to flip him to become an English spy in the English service to spy on other English exiles who were plotting against the king. So he was, like, going to be a double agent. He was going to be a double agent. But here's the thing. Um, It didn't really work. Uh, In, like, 1666, it's actually believed that he betrayed her to like he let the dutch know what was happening and what she was doing and that she was a spy and he completely betrayed her so here's the thing about being a spy you do get paid for being a spy you know king charles is supposed to be giving payments to afro while she's over there doing this hard work now she had brought money with her um she had to find a place to stay and there wasn't much profit to it whatsoever and so when she got there 
she kind of didn't have any money because living was more expensive than what she thought it would be. So literally a month after her arrival, she had to sell all of her jewelry and she kept trying to contact Charles saying, hey, um, I need money. And he was very slow in paying. I mean, to be fair, there is a war going on, but also you're not paying your spies. There's times where he didn't pay her at all. And, you know, it's kind of like an all-expenses-paid trip, except he wasn't paying. So she had to borrow money just so she could return to London, where she was living. And um, she kept trying to get money from him. And it's said that she may have never even been paid in full or what she was promised by King Charles or by the monarchy. And because of this, she wasn't able to pay the money that she borrowed to be able to live. Um, So a warrant was actually put out for her arrest. And there's a couple different versions. Um, You know, this happened so long ago and there's not a lot of information about her life some people believe that she was arrested and she spent some time in prison for her debt, but others believe that she didn't serve time. But either way, she was in debt and she had to spend a lot of her life trying to pay it off, whether she spent time in prison or whether she didn't. One thing's for sure is King Charles never paid her the money that she was promised. So, When she got back to London after being a spy, she was like, okay, well, I guess I gotta make money somehow. And so she started to work for the King's Company and the Duke's Company. And the cool thing about London at this time, and you probably know this because of William Shakespeare, is there were companies who worked together to put on productions and you know they were financed by you know certain royals so she worked for the king's company which was financed by king charles and the duke's company which was financed by the duke and she worked as a scribe so she was writing plays um she had been writing poetry for a while it wasn't really haying that we know of there's not really any evidence to suggest that it was, none that I've seen at least. So it was at this time that she actually started to make her living writing plays, which is something that hadn't really been done before. And like I said, I think it's probably because King Charles II finally lifted the ban that women could finally perform in theater and so people were like well I guess women can write plays now too and she went and she did it and so she wrote her first play and it was staged in 1670 it was called The Forced Marriage she wrote The Amorous Prince in 1671 and then she wrote The Dutch Lover later and um she had some hits she had some fails and I think 
her most popular work now is The Rover. And I think something that is so cool about her work is that she talks about a lot of things that were probably very controversial at the time. For example, she talks about sexual freedom. She talks about um, the roles that women have in society. She even talks about like what a lot of people believe is bisexuality now. Um, it seems like she was really addressing like sexual desire with females. And we don't know any we don't know any women that she had relations with, but again, we also don't know anything about her life. So it could have been very possible that she was bisexual or queer in some way, and we just don't have any information on that. I mean, during that time, it wasn't really widely accepted, so it's not like she could have just gotten married to a woman or had a relationship with a woman and everyone would have been like, mm, whatever, you know? It's not like she was in a high position of power and people could just look past it. You know, she ended up dying in 1689. And I think something that happened not until recently was that she fell under the radar. People kind of pushed her away. They were like, this is morally wrong. She is scandalous. We can't do this. We can't talk about Afrobed or we can't put on her show because she really was talking about a lot of stuff that people were afraid of. I mean, addressing sexuality, addressing roles, female roles, and why they're stupid and they should not be the way they are and how women should have more rights. I mean, think about it. That was literally scary for people to hear that back in the day. For her time, she was revolutionary. I still think she's kind of revolutionary. In 1670, with her first play, The Forced Marriage, it's a tragic comedy. She writes about sex and abusive power, okay? And The Rover, she talks about you know, it's a it's a sex comedy. That's what it is. I mean, she's kind of like a comedic writer, and it features a queer couple, and it pits the virgin against the, quote, whore, unquote. And they're players in this, in this game, this sexual game. I, I, I mean, <laughs> I may be crazy, but I think that's pretty progressive. I, then she wrote, a second version of the rover in 1681 and the hero chooses the quote whore unquote over the virgin because you know it's it's like she was kind of saying what's what's wrong what's wrong with what's wrong with either of those i mean it's like it's one big sexual game to society. So when she did die, um, it is believed that she still died poor, in debt. Um, but she ended up having a legacy, and 
I think that's something that she may not have known that she would have accomplished. I think a lot of her life she she probably spent worried about raising the money because King Charles never paid her and she fell in debt and I mean as a woman as an independent woman how are you gonna get money and she tried to get money writing plays I don't know if she got paid less than her male counterparts I haven't found anything on that I would not be surprised all in all I think that you know while she did really set the stage, haha, uh-huh, literally, for women to go out and try it. Um, for centuries, there were still a lot of problems with women getting a chance, getting, you know, the stage, being able to be listened to, taken seriously, paid the right amount. I mean, women are still not paid equally um, in the arts industry and in a lot of industries. So we talked about the first female playwright to earn a living, so to say, from writing. So now I'm going to move on to an actress who was in film and theater, um, Josephine Baker. I love her. I think she is iconic in so many ways and I am excited to talk about her, but she was actually the first black woman to star in a major motion picture in 1934, which was Zuzu. Not only was she a, you know, a film star, she was also a leader for the civil rights movement and gave a voice to that. And she was also a queer icon, which is probably my favorite fact about her. So let's get to it. Josephine Baker was born in 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri, and she was born to entertainers. Her parents had spent most of their lives being entertainers, but they never really made it big. In fact, um, she actually had to find odd jobs to survive. She was actually homeless for a while. She didn't really have a good home life growing up. If she was unable to find work, she would often just dance on the streets collecting money from anyone she possibly could. But eventually her routine caught the attention of a theater troupe and around 15 she was recruited to work for the St. Louis Chorus Vaudeville Show. So she spent a lot of her teen years touring for vaudeville shows you know this was kind of the time where vaudeville was really big in america and um when she was a you know chorus dancer in the saint louis chorus vaudeville show it was said she was so good that she was the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville she eventually moved to new york city and she was participating in more vaudeville shows and the harlem renaissance which was flourishing at this time as well and after a few years of success you know segregation was really running rampant and she decided that she wanted to go to paris you know over in europe um racism wasn't as bad as it was in america especially during this time things were 
really tense, things were really bad, and she decided that she was just going to go to Paris. Paris. She was just going to live in France. And she was so good there that she was actually one of the most sought-out-after performers due to her dancing and singing style. I mean, she did it all. She sang, she danced, she acted. Um, you know, her audiences were mostly white, but they they loved her. They loved everything that she did. She was so talented. And, you know, she was the first black woman to actually star in a major motion picture, Zuzu, in 1934. And she had a, um, a film career as well in France. You know, while she was living in France, um, she actually had a relationship with Frida Kahlo. It is believed that Josephine Baker was queer. She was probably bisexual. Um, She had married multiple men before. She had never openly married a woman or anything that we know of, but she had many relationships with different stars and different women throughout her lifetime. She was very independent. She did not want to rely on a man. She made that very, very clear. Her and Frida both were very radical in that sense that they were like, we don't really need to depend on a man. Even though Frida had a relationship with um, Diego Rivera for a long time, she very much was was independent and she would go off and she would have her own relationships and say that she didn't need him. She didn't need him to survive. And, and she was right. She didn't. She was successful in her own way. So I'm actually just putting this together now. I talked about how Afro-Ben was a spy and she was a playwright. And um, I feel like I should mention that Josephine Baker, the amazing woman talented woman that she was she was also a spy which is so funny so amazing she was a spy during world war ii when adolf hitler and um the german army invaded france during world war ii she actually was like yeah i'll join in the fight against the nazis sure yeah so she actually helped the french military and um when she would perform in front of german officers, um, whether it was in nightclubs or bars, wherever she was, any secrets or any information that she heard while performing, she would give the information to the French military for them to use. She was literally working as a spy while performing for the enemy. And she did that. She did that throughout World War II, working for the French military, and I don't think the Germans ever knew that she was doing that, because they were like, oh, she's just a performer. It's not a big deal. Like, you go to a bar, you go to a nightclub, it's loud in there, you you don't think anyone can really hear you. You invaded a country, you think you're fine. Surprise! Josephine Baker may be singing her song, but she is paying close attention to you sitting in the front. And, I mean, it's amazing, like... (laughs) she really did that that is just i don't know there's something about women spies in history that it's just so fascinating to me and maybe it's because spies are just like such an interesting topic like it's it seems like so much work it seems so dangerous like it's such a dangerous thing dangerous affair and yet you have this brilliant performer who does it like it's nothing i love that (laughs) anyways So she performed in Paris for 
for years and she was very hesitant to return back to the United States because she hadn't really been facing that much racism in Europe nowhere close to what she was facing when she was younger living in America living in St. Louis living in New York City but she decided okay in in the 40s and 50s like she was like okay I guess I'll after the war go back so she went back and something to note this bothers me so much, is Las Vegas, when it was desegregated, the people who are always credited with that are Sammy Davis Jr. and and Frank Sinatra, you know, the popular singers. But it's actually believed that Josephine Baker is the reason for that. I mean, she was very much a civil rights activist. She, She really was. She worked hard for it during the end of her life, um, from the 50s until she died. She returned in the 50s. She constantly was working with the NAACP, and they constantly wanted her to speak for them. And they were like, come speak to us here, 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 here. But she was constantly canceling events because she was like, well, I can't speak in Atlanta because they're refusing lodging for me in the city. And that's not fair. That's not right. That's ridiculous. And then she was refused to be served at other restaurants and hotels in the U.S. And she's like, this is ridiculous. Like, I I literally, you want me to come to these places and I can't even go there because these people won't even let me speak here. They won't even let me enter here. They won't let me stay here. And, you know, at the time, people thought she just had high standards, but she just wanted equality. It was as simple as that. And the NAACP saw how much work she was putting forward, and they actually declared May 20th, 1951, um, Josephine Baker Day. And, you know, people in her hometown wanted her to perform there, but she didn't perform until 1952 because it was so segregated in St. Louis, and she never, ever in Europe performed for a segregated audience it was always desegregated like she refused refused to have those standards put on her that she would have to perform for a segregated audience she's like no i'm josephine baker so finally in 1952 the keel auditorium finally allowed desegregated audiences to see her In 1963, she was one of the few women allowed to speak at the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. And, you know, she went there and she talked about how her life as a black woman in the United States is completely different than her life as a black woman in Europe. Completely different. I have a quote from her right here that says, You know, friends, that I do not lie to you when I tell you I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. And so she talked about, she was very honest about her experiences and how different they were in America, because America was so racially divided in so many ways and she was she was pissed about it I mean 
she didn't really want to come back and she came back and she saw that it was essentially the same as it was when she left as a child so she kept fighting um you know she eventually adopted 13 children from various countries and uh this is cute she called her family the rainbow tribe and she took her children on the road with her and she tried to show people that harmony could exist and happen and she performed late into her life um, a few years before she died um and she passed away in 1975 but the reason i really wanted to talk about josephine baker is um well first of all she was just amazing in so many ways she could sing she could dance she was a spy she adopted 13 children she didn't need a man she was independent and she also fought so long for what she believed in um she fought really long when you think about it and again she's another woman who was you know recorded to be the first to do something so we've talked about a playwright we've talked about an actress and now we're going to talk about an artist and i was struggling to find an artist to talk about you know we're lucky there's a lot of female artists in existence and still in existence and there's definitely so many amazing women to choose from and so i was researching kind of you know lesser known female artists um i don't know that much about art history only a little bit um i've only studied a little bit of it and i came across this woman called hilma f clint and for those of you who don't know to our knowledge she is the first western abstract artist um abstract expressionist art that period didn't really you know happen until the 1940s in new york that's when it really started and you know we have bauhaus we have german expressionism um which happened kind of around the 20s and in the the you know the early 1900s but what's so amazing about hilma is that she was a Swedish artist. She was born in 1862, and she actually made her first abstract piece of art in 1906. She predates everything that we know, and it's so interesting because, you know, the people who are credited to be, like, the fathers of abstract art and, you know, the most well-known abstract painters are all men. We have Kandinsky, we have Malevich, we have Mondrian, we have Pollock, we have, you know, all of these men. Um, but no one really talks about the women. And Hilma is one of those women who predates those men, who made her first piece of art in 1906 and continued to make abstract art until 1915. What's so interesting about her is um, during the years 1882 to around 1887, she studied art, uh, mainly portrait and landscape painting, 
um, she studied at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts, and she did so well that she graduated with honors and she was granted a free studio. Um, she was really into plants. She made a lot of botanical gardens, which eventually made their way into scientific journals. Uh, she made portraits. She made her living off of commissions for portraits and landscapes. But what she's known for now isn't that. She's not known for any of that now. That's not what her name is put next to. And how she came to create abstract art is the reason I wanted to talk about her because it's actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, so she had a younger sister and around 1880, her younger sister actually died. And during this time, um, there was a lot of interest in the spiritual dimension, not just from Hilma, not just from Sweden, but a lot in the Western world. It was really like this big thing for whatever reason. And she really became interested in the spiritual dimension. And what she did is she believed in the ability to communicate with spirits in another realm. She believed in them. She believed that she could communicate with them. And so she began to meet regularly with four other women who shared similar beliefs. They believed in the spiritual world, but they also believed in science. They also believed in religion. Um, they kind of believed in sort of everything. Um, and in the 1890s, they started to call themselves the five. And what they do is they started to have these seances. They would have seances with the spirit world. They believed that they actually communicated with and received messages from higher beings. Higher beings. What they would do is they would use a psychograph. And for anyone who doesn't know, a psychograph is this tool that is used to record psychic transmissions. They would use that to communicate with higher beings. And they would enter a trance and they would get these messages and Hilma was actually assigned by what she called the High Masters to create paintings for the temple. Now, we don't know what the temple is. I don't even know if she really understood what the temple was. It was something that the higher beings, the spiritual world, told her to create. And she felt as if she was being directed by some other force to paint these images. She even wrote in her notebook, the pictures were painted directly through me without any preliminary drawings and with great force. I had no idea what the paintings were supposed to depict. Nevertheless, I worked swiftly and surely without changing a single brush stroke. So she was saying she didn't plan what to do. She just painted. She felt as if the spirits were guiding her. And so what she did was she created these paintings for the temple. And we believe that it's around 193 paintings in different sub-series. And some of the paintings 
were huge. I mean, absolutely huge. She spent all this time doing it. And while she's painting these for these higher beings, she's making a living off of portraits and landscapes, something that is completely different because these paintings are completely abstract. And you have to think, where, you know, where is she getting these ideas from? It has to be from the spirits or these seances because no one else has done abstract art before. She really is inventing something, which is so amazing. And while she said she started out by having the spirits guide her, she eventually was able to interpret the messages that she was getting from the spirit world and depict them herself, create the paintings herself eventually. What's so interesting about these paintings, called the paintings for the temple, um, she said in her will that she didn't want them to be seen until 20 years after her death. And for whatever reason, whether it was because she felt like the world wasn't ready for it yet, or because they were so personal, or because they weren't for the world to see, I think there's a lot to unpack there. This whole time we haven't even entered the abstract period in New York, in America. And, you know, her most well-known series is The Ten Largest, and this happened between October and December in 1907. And it focuses on the cycle of what is believed to be the stages of life and the connections to the universe. So like I said, she focused on spirituality and religion, but she also focused on science. It wasn't like she believed in religion, but didn't believe in science, or she believed in science and didn't believe in religion or spirits or anything like that. Um, she just believed in everything. It wasn't something that left something else out. So I urge you to look up the 10 largest, look up the paintings for the temple, because it is art. I, ca I can't describe it to you. It, it's, it's abstract art to begin with, so it is really hard to explain, and it is subjective. What we interpret it as today could be entirely different from what she meant. So when she finally completed the works for the temple, the spiritual guidance just ended. And it, it's kind of believed that she stopped the seances and everything like that. But she kept pursuing abstract painting. She kept practicing. She kept painting. Um, but it wasn't like she was making any money from it. It was just more of a hobby. Um, she eventually got into watercolors, even though she was mainly doing oil paintings for the temple. Um, she moved down to smaller paintings, even though she was doing larger ones before. She, it seemed like this was really experimenting for a while after the temple. So she ended up dying in 1944 at 82 years old. So when she died, that's when the abstract period was really beginning. You know, she, she died when people's careers were just starting for abstract art. And something to note is that she had over 1,200 pieces when she died. Her, her nephew listened to her. He waited for 20 years until after her death. 
1970, he offered her paintings as a gift to uh, Moderna Masit in Stockholm, but they declined. <laughs> they declined the donation. I don't know if they just weren't into it or something like that. In the 80s, her work got more recognition, and now um, it seems as if modern, you know, contemporaries very much appreciate her art and what she did, and she is seen as the first abstract painter. So, you know, it took until after her death to, to appreciate her, and it is because she wanted to keep it a secret, but also we have to ask the question of, well, would the world have been ready yet? I don't think she thought the world would have been ready yet. They probably weren't ready yet in 1906. Um, I mean, we haven't even reached the 20s yet. Maybe in the 20s they might have been ready, but we weren't even there yet. She was so ahead of her time. I urge you guys to look more into these women because they truly are amazing. And just a reminder that, you know, there are so many women in history whose names have been erased, who have accomplished so much, and um, we just really need to keep their memory alive somehow. Whether it's one video at a time, one podcast at a time, reading one article at a time, whatever it is. If you haven't already, you can check out her story talk on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to donate to the Patreon, that would be amazing, but no pressure. And remember, it's not just history, it's hers too.